1: Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy, taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now.
5: They start the conversation now. What in the world? Hello,
4: strangers.
5: I'm finally out of the hole everything. I'm doing great. They let me out yesterday. You know, it was the craziest thing. Boy, how the incident happened, boy, going to be a, a separate podcast except but you would never believe. Maybe it's a good thing it went down because a lot of roadblocks got out of the way and a lot of roads got overpainted.
6: Wayne was out of the hole, and my daily calls with him were now back in full swing.
5: Yeah, they let me out yesterday, and the Institute, you know, they were way out of the publicity and all. They said, Yeah, it's going good and all that, you know. Yeah, they were telling me they had been following it all, and uh and they explained it. And I sat down with the warden and all three of them, and I explained the whole project, what we do. He said, i tell you what, Wayne. He said, Because I explained to him, I said, You know, I'm not out trying to talk to no me. I said, We're trying to do stuff together. He said, I don't blame plane. He said, Well, the people you need to get in here and see, like T.I., like me, he said, you get with me and the lawyer, and I'll make it happen. They put me back in the same door. Back here was everything. They did a
6: complete reset. It had been a month since I last talked to Wayne. And before I could ask him any more questions, it was strictly business. He first set up a conference call with Dwayne and I. Hey,
7: what's up, man?
6: Hey, what's up, man? Hold on one second. Wayne is on the other line.
5: Yeah, I've got Dwayne here, Payne, and I I want to reiterate the same thing with Dwayne on the line when we said to make sure that everybody's on the exact same page. Nobody speaks for Wayne but Wayne. But I've delegated Jimmy to handle all the contacts regarding the attorneys and the legal affairs on that, so Payne understands. But I said for anything regarding the release of documents and news, uh, anything about the case needs to come through Dwayne because Dwayne is the most knowledgeable on this case. And like I explained to Payne, you're the only person in Jimmy that can actually walk with him through these neighborhoods introduce him to the people he's going to really need to see because they're not going to talk to, with him otherwise. To beat the bushes and all. See, anything regarding my legal case, the, the way where I'm delegating the things, Payne, regarding the legal case and contacts, you go through Jimmy on all of that. He'll make that happen. And anything regarding the documents or whatever, we have to go through Dwayne. And see, see these are the two people I trust to do that.
6: The podcast was airing now, and it seemed like it was making Wayne a little antsy. Next, he set up a conference call with his friend Jimmy.
5: You're going to have to get with Jimmy. He's going to have to take you to meet all of these different people and all that. This thing's money and, and gas. You understand what I'm saying right there? Dwayne is going to do the same thing, but you're going to meet suspects. You're going to meet people who are eyewitnesses to these things, but they have to take you into hoods that you can't go. Not being funny, babe, but being a young white boy, there are places you can't go by yourself with this. They're going to have to be your eyes and ears to go. Are you understanding what I'm saying Is I hear? you? have one minute left. They're my eyes and ears to get it right. They'll be able to tell you, no, it didn't happen this way. Yes, it did happen that way. No matter what any of them say, unless you hear that from me. They, they could give you input and all, but basically, the ball the ball stops with me paying. That's what I'm trying to say.
7: Wayne would have never been convicted if he was smarter. But the reason Wayne was convicted was because of what he did on the stand when he went off the way he went off in court. Now, part of that was it was Mary Welcome, his attorney's fault. The first two days that Wayne was testifying, he was cool, they was asking him questions about being gay and all of this different stuff. And he was saying, look, man, I don't know nothing about that stuff. I didn't do this. I wasn't there. And he was cool, calm, and collected. The defense attorney told him to fight back on the stand. And that's what ended up really getting Wayne, getting the guilty verdict. Because people was like, oh, he is a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type person.
5: And what made her come to me and do that was a news story. Channel 5 ran. He said Wayne Williams appears too cool and calm. They
7: were responding to a darn news story. God. She told me, Wayne, you need to be more forceful. You're looking
5: too calm and cool, and Mary thread quit if I
8: didn't do that. In Atlanta, another body was discovered today, the 23rd. At Police Task Force Headquarters, there are 27 faces on the wall, 26 murdered, one missing. We do not know the person or persons that are responsible, therefore we do not have the motive.
9: From Tenderfoot
6: TV and House Works in Atlanta, Like 11 other recent victims in Atlanta, Rogers
10: apparently was asphyxiated. Atlanta is unlikely to catch the killer unless he
8: keeps on killing.
6: This is Atlanta Monster. The first thing I asked Wayne was about the trial, when he lost his cool on the witness stand.
5: You're going to find out all of what happened behind the scenes
7: on this. Wayne doesn't agree with this, but this is my theory behind that. I really think that she was a plant.
6: Dwayne's convinced that Wayne's attorney, Mary Welcome, was some sort of plant. But he had no evidence to back that theory. Even Wayne himself disagreed.
5: I was the one that chose Mary. They didn't choose her. you know what I'm saying. That was, that was a spurred amendment, you know, because I had known her before. To be honest with you, I liked her as a person. I was drunk over her. That's why I picked her. I didn't believe got Yes, serious.
7: she was fine. But, but that's
5: yeah. the thing they do. But I mean, but they didn't bring her to
7: my attention, Dwayne. Yes, she was fine. She was fine. She do. was fine. and She yeah. was fine. I'm going to yeah. go back on, one more time. I'm going to yeah. go back on, one more time. Right. Okay. okay.
6: Apparently, Wayne was pretty fond of Mary Welcome. I asked him about the blow-up on the witness stand.
5: This was, I think, my second day on the witness stand. And that was an article in the paper and in one of the TV stations that, that said that I was being too cool and calm on the witness stand. And so my attorney saw
7: that. And they were saying that
5: we need to do something. They were afraid that we would lose the jury. I was coming off being too calm and collected, whatever the heck that means. And so finally, they said, we need you to be more forceful and project yourself. And I said, how do I do this? I mean. How, how do you try to pre- present yourself in such a way? Because I don't think most people realize that isn't a storybook. That isn't a guide to how you respond on a witness stand. I don't care what people tell you about what type of
7: preparations you go
5: through. And I, I, I just responded, you know. And, and, and I, I was so upset that, that I, I could sense that that was a tragic mistake for me because people thought... I exploded, and I, no, I was well under control. I wasn't, I wasn't upset at district attorney, so to I was upset at my lawyers for putting me in such a tragic situation. So that's what my
6: frustration was over. So do you think that that played a big role in your conviction?
5: No doubt, no doubt. We, we,
6: we talked to a lot of the jury members afterwards,
5: and, 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 and believe it or not, you could actually see the look on their face. I could sense it. You know, it was like, they were like, <gasps> Oh my God! You know, and, and the DA—I had I, I literally played myself out of stupidity into the
9: DA's hands, and and, and it, it was it was the turning point in the trial. We found out later on. You know, in talking to Wayne and, and looking at the evidence of this case, the entire case was built on fiber evidence. There were no fingerprints. I mean, there were allegations that some of Wayne's victims were at his house or in his car. You mean not one fingerprint was found in Wayne's house? He was that methodical that he cleaned all of these fingerprints. No neighbors ever said, hey, we saw these little boys going into Wayne's house. Prison, right? If Wayne was not on that bridge, the case would have been solved a different way or it would still be unsolved. Take that bridge out of the equation, and what do you have?
6: Vincent Hill reiterated several episodes back the overall importance of the bridge. Fiber evidence aside, if you take the bridge out of the equation, you don't have Wayne to begin with. Let's listen back to Wayne's version of the bridge incident from one of my first calls with him.
5: I was doing some pictures. I was dead tired. And, and on the 21st, after the 21st, that was the first time I ever talked to her about 3.34 o'clock
10: briefly. And that's when she said, you know, I want to audition. And I said, well, before you audition, we need to do an interview He tried to persuade the jury he really was out near a bridge that night looking for a Cheryl Johnson, who still remains a mystery to this trial. The state implied he fabricated the story, but Williams didn't budge from it, claiming the woman simply gave him a wrong number and wrong address. And I was suspicious because the information she gave me,
5: man, from Memphis, Tennessee, I said, oh, well, you should know some people I know in Memphis, I called some names, and she didn't know them, so that kind of raised her red flag. She said, well, why don't you come by the apartment where I'm staying with the friend?" I think she said, about 7.15, because I got to be at work at 8 o'clock, and that's when she gave me the address. And I said, you sure about that address? She said, yeah, and I said, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow morning. As a matter of fact, if you look at my statements, I even tell the police, I'm the only reason I went out to check the address was because I felt there was a fake address that she gave. That's why I went out to check it in the first place. I'm not even sure that's her name. That was just the name that she gave. We were doing public auditions. A lot of people gave fake names and fake addresses. So I think all the, the hoopla over Cheryl Johnson is me. You know, she was obviously
10: a prank call.
6: The prosecution claimed that Wayne Williams had fabricated the entire story of Cheryl Johnson, saying she was fake. And now, years later, Wayne agrees. He was receiving hundreds of calls for music auditions, and every so often he'd get a prank call, this being one of them. But regardless whether or not Cheryl Johnson was a prank call, Wayne still claims that she called him. Well, at least somebody did. Over the course of a few weeks, I kept asking him about it, trying to pinpoint an exact timeline for everything. And according to Wayne... It starts like this. She
5: originally did not call me. This was the key point. She called my mother and left a note. You know, and my mother left a note, and I. And this was on the 20th, if I'm
6: reading now. Okay. According to Wayne, Cheryl Johnson originally did not call him. She called the number on Wayne's flyer, which at the time was his house phone. He wasn't there, so his mother answered. This happened the day before the bridge incident.
5: Anytime somebody called about an audition, and I want their uh, our caller to do it. She would just write a, a post-it note, you know, for that. That's all. I talked to her the next day. My mom was the one who wrote the, the caller slip. My mom wrote
6: that. So Wayne's mom took the call from Cheryl Johnson the day before the bridge incident and wrote down her information on a slip of paper to give to Wayne. But what exactly did Wayne's mom write on the piece of paper? She just wrote a note, the callback number, that's it. So your mom wrote down her number, and then where'd you get the address from for her?
7: It was on
6: the note. On the note his mom left him was Cheryl Johnson's name, phone number, and her address. But Wayne did not make contact with her until the next day, around 4 p.m., on the same night of the bridge incident. According to Wayne, he didn't call her. She called his house phone again. But this time he was there to answer it.
5: And, and the next day, um, she called back about four o'clock. That's when I answered, you know, and I, you know, I figured something was wrong with this woman because it, her information didn't add up. You know, it didn't
6: add up. This is where things start to get a little confusing, so I'll do my best to break it down. Wayne says the next day he didn't call Cheryl Johnson back, but she called his house phone again, even though Wayne had the information to call her back himself. With so much emphasis on the note from his mom, it seemed odd for him to point out. So I asked him about it again just for clarity.
5: She called me, Payne, okay. I answered the phone. I don't know what number she called from. I call, I, I did I, I did not call her back, that's what I'm saying. I talked to her the afternoon, or who this woman claimed she was on the afternoon of the 21st, about four o'clock. We talked for about maybe five minutes. And, and when she mentioned the address, that's when you know, she was telling me, I gotta be at work. I said, well, we need to do not an audition like that, but an interview. I said, well, Kim, we gotta do an interview before your audition. That's what she was telling me, she gotta go back to Memphis. And that's when I started questioning her on Memphis. I said, well, you ought to know so-and-so. She didn't know anybody I mentioned the names in Memphis, so my radar went up at that point. I knew quite a few people in the music business in Memphis, and she didn't know any of them. Strange. So that was the only time I talked to this woman who claimed to be Cheryl
6: Johnson. He talked to her around 4 p.m. that day for about five minutes, and he claimed he was already a little suspicious of her. But he agreed to meet her the next morning at her apartment anyway, and he said that that phone call was the first and last time he ever talked to Cheryl Johnson. So your mom got the call from from Cheryl Johnson and then she wrote down the the number and the address. Right, the callback information, right. Okay, so did you have that note with you when you went driving out that night? Right. Right. That's that's the note, right. Okay, so you so did you take Please, the note let me, with let me explain. you? Right.
5: Yeah, I put it on my clipboard. I I had about eight notes on that. Said otherwise, pay, we did, the, or did if it hangs up, I'll call you back. Okay. okay. I I'll, I'll call you back.
6: After confirming his appointment with Cheryl Johnson the next morning. Wayne left his house later that night to go find her address because he was still convinced she was a fake caller. When he left his house, he brought with him the slip of paper his mother wrote down her phone number and address on. So the night of the bridge incident, what time did you leave your house that night?
5: I left about 6.30 to pick up Willie Hunter.
6: His first stop that night was not to go find Cheryl Johnson's address. He left around 6.30 p.m. to go to a recording studio called Hotlanta Records to drop off a bill for photo shoot services.
5: We went straight to College Park to meet Melvin Ware, Jackie Dino, and, and the people at Hotlanta Records. College Park down there by the airport to deliver the bill for the photo services I had done. And we stayed there until about maybe a to about an hour. And uh, I left there about 7.45. And I had to rush. I never will forget it was a Thursday because I had to rush back home to get the car to my dad because he had a Kiwanis Club beat that night. He was late getting to the beat because I had to drop Willie off first. When I got back, it was about 8, maybe a little after 8. I took Willie
6: Hunt home first and took the car to my dad. So after you left the hot land of Records, where'd you go after that? I went home. It's now around 8 p.m., and he's back at his house. You got home at 8, and then when'd you leave the house again? Uh, about 1, about 1 that morning. Wayne says that he didn't leave the house again until 1 a.m. that night. In the FBI case files, Wayne recounts his version of what happened that night from that point forward. This is how it reads verbatim from the FBI documents. When asked to recount his activities on the night of May 21, 1981, Williams stated that he had stopped at the San Lounge on West Peachtree to see Wilbur Jordan. Williams was attempting to pick up a tape recorder, which he had loaned him. Williams recalled that he had talked to a female who he stated was in her 40s and who was taking admission. The individual informed Williams that Jordan had been in but was not around at the time. Williams left a message with her regarding the tape recorder and then drove to Smyrna, Georgia in an attempt to find Cheryl Johnson's address. I asked Wayne about this. You know, when I went out, my intention was to go to the club about 1.30 that
5: morning, but to get the record my intention was I said, well, before I go to the club, let me check on this address first, and that's when I made the trip up to Cobb County, and all of this started transpiring.
6: But according to FBI documents, Wayne made a stop first at a club called Sansucci Lounge.
5: Hey, I've got statements I need to send you. where I I never made statements to anybody. I was going to the club. That was my intention to get the recorder. I didn't go to the club until the night of the twenty-second.
6: Wayne said he left his house with the intention of going to the club, but before he made it there, he decided to go check on Cheryl Johnson's address first. Contrary to the FBI reports, Wayne says he did not go to the club the night of the bridge incident, but instead, he went the following night, the night of May 22nd. This whole thing was confusing, so a few days later, I asked him about it again.
5: What I did, when I, when I went out there that night, I went to the San Susie first. Understand what I'm saying? Yep. I went, after I left home, I went to the San Susie first. All right, I asked for, for, um, for um, Wilbur George, I keep forgetting that because he's dead now, And that was when she said, he's busy now. I said, well, I'll be back later. I left there and I went back on I-20. I was going to go home, but I said, no, let me check this address. So I went I-20 to I-285 and went up there to find the address. So this would have been about, I'm guessing about 2 o'clock, something like
6: that. Wayne's version of the story had changed. Now he's saying he did go to the club that night, the same night
9: he was pulled over on the bridge. So which one was it? I heard different accounts too, right out of Wayne's mouth. But one thing that's really important, being a liar doesn't make you a killer. People lie all the time doesn't make you a killer. Wayne certainly told me two completely different stories about the San club.
6: So a few days later, I asked him about it again. I'm confused about when you went to the club. One time you told me that you went to the club before the bridge and then one time you told me that you went the next day.
5: Okay, let me me correct that. Okay, so, so we'll we'll understand. Okay. Well all the confusion over over the club was is that I went to the club first before the bridge incident I went to the club looking for the manager who was uh, a friend of mine. As a matter of fact, he was a co-producer with my music company. I did not go to see him, but yet the FBI in the statements tried to turn it around and claim that I went to the club and saw Gino Jordan. I never said that. I never saw Gino that night. What I did was the next night after the bridge incident, which would have been the night of the 22nd, I went to the club and saw Gino Jordan. I was going there to pick up a tape recorder. And so I did see him the next night.
6: Another thing Wayne had pointed out to me in our very first conversation about the bridge was something about his handwriting and the phone number for Cheryl Johnson. You may remember this.
5: And the only confusion in the statements was over the thing on the telephone number in Cheryl Johnson. The number was a nine three four seven seven six six. You'll see when you get my writing. I'm going to send you some samples of it. It was four three four seven seven six six. My fours
6: and my nines look alike because I closed the loop at the top of them. So the fours and nines were mixed up because his handwriting looked the same on the note. No,
5: no, no. No, you don't hear me, Payne. The number I wrote was 4347766, 6, okay? They, in looking at my notes in the car and my right, thought it was a nine. Are you understanding what I'm saying? My nines and my fours. Look, I can't tell the difference. They assumed my, my writing was 934, and that incorrect information lasted to this day. So, right. That's where the confusion came in on it. So when and that's why the note was so important, because the note would have shown it was 434, not 934.
6: But Wayne had told me earlier that his mother wrote the note, the same note he brought with him in the car. So your mom got the call from, from Cheryl Johnson, and then she wrote down the number and the address? Right, the callback information, right. Okay, so did you have that note with you when you went driving out that night? Right. Right. That's that's the note. Right. Okay. So you so did you Wait, take the note let with me, you? Let me explain. Right. Yeah, I put it on my clipboard. I, I had about eight notes on this. So how was that possible? Wayne's theory about his handwriting would only make sense if he had written the note himself, but he didn't. He said his mom did, unless there was a second note.
5: I had an appointment book with me at the time, and and to be honest, with you, I can't remember if I actually had the note from Cheryl Johnson with me that night a notation on my appointment book. I'm pretty sure it was a notation on my appointment book that I showed to the FBI agent. On the note that the FBI agents got, that was my mom's handwriting.
6: Before Wayne was stopped on the bridge, he claimed he had pulled over into a liquor store parking lot and used a payphone in an attempt to call Cheryl Johnson. So you called the number, and what happened when you called the number?
5: Well, the... the when I called the number that I called under there, the first time I got a, you know, uh, this number not in service, so I dialed a, and I dialed another number, and then I think it was nine six seven, so I can't remember. I tried three or four numbers, and finally I called one number and it looked like I woke somebody up. I said, "Well, well, best to Sarah. She ain't here. Hung up the damn phone like that. Not to say that it was the right number. But the person said she ain't here. Just slammed the phone down. So I woke somebody up, and I didn't
6: try no more after that." This story does match the FBI reports. But I was still confused about the handwriting story and the mix-up on the phone numbers. So I asked him about it again. And so the FBI tried to call the number, right, and then said it didn't work or what? No, no, no,
5: Payne. They tried to call 934. I dialed 434. Are you understanding what I'm saying?
6: Yeah, so they called the wrong number.
5: Right, they tried it. Yeah, I've never called a 934 on that. That's them. I don't know what, you know. The number I called was four three four seven seven six six, and I got like a number not in service or something. I can't remember now. But I tried, because it wasn't about a minute, and I tried a couple of more combinations and all, and finally I got one when somebody asked, I feel a message. She ain't here and slammed the phone down like that, you
6: know. So the number that you had, the the one that they got wrong, do you think the number that you had was her correct number?
5: I don't think any of it was correct, Payne. That's the point I'm making. I
11: think she was a bogus call
9: from the beginning. That's my point. Mm. I think the Cheryl Johnson was just some story he made up really quick. Two in the morning. Wayne could have said 100 different things besides Cheryl Johnson, which police never found a Cheryl Johnson with that phone number, which didn't exist. Whatever Wayne was doing that night, I don't know. Wayne possibly could be hiding something. Or maybe Wayne did kill Nathaniel Cater, and maybe that's why he and Jimmy are the only two murders he was convicted of. But simply changing his story, it doesn't prove anything as far as, you know, why not years later, Wayne say, yeah, I lied. Here's what I was really doing. But at the same time, you could argue and say, why not years later, because let's be honest, I don't think Wayne will ever get out of prison. Why not years later say, yeah, I'm gonna confess to everything and here's how I did it. Wayne's entire existence is built on this. If he confesses, then, you know, that's a wrap. Wayne Williams will just diminish. If Wayne confessed, he's... Wayne was probably up to no good that night, but I don't think it involved uh, Nathaniel Cater.
12: Start having sex and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily.
1: To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done... We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world.
13: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast.
14: I don't know that there you know there was that defining moment during that trial. There was one for me and as an observer that came at the very end and I still think it is some of the strongest evidence that was presented in the trial. And I would tell you that ninety nine point nine percent of the your audience has never heard of it. The blood. Two of the last four victims were stabbed at the end of the string of murders, John Porter and William Barrett. There were two blood stains found in the station wagon. They typed them. Neither one of them were Wayne's blood. But they both matched the two victims that had been stabbed, Porter and Barrett.
10: The link was suggested by showing the jury this ripped up car seat. It came from the 1970 station wagon driven by Wayne Williams. An expert from the Georgia Crime Lab told the jury that she had found four areas of dried blood on the seat. Two types were analyzed, type A and type B. Prosecutors then had witnesses testify about blood samples taken from the bodies of John Porter and William Barrett, two victims found with stab wounds. Porter had type B, Barrett type A the same as the samples found in the suspect's car. The jury also heard the dried blood in the car could not be from Williams since he was type O. The state obviously suggesting that the bodies of Barrett and Porter were at one time on that seat. Of course, the defense wanted the jury to realize the connection is a shaky one, since William's parents and the owners of the car, an uncle and aunt, and thousands of other people may have had those blood types and driven in the
14: car. But if you could get to the blood, I think, if I recall, it was within six weeks, you can break it down even further. You get into an enzyme factor. They were able to do that. Both of those two victims had been stabbed within the last six weeks, both of the two blood stains in the backseat of Wayne Williams' car were fresh enough to be able to break them down into the enzyme factor. Both matched Barrett and Porter. Prosecutors continued to close in with a connection.
10: The jury, listening carefully and taking notes, heard that both Porter and Barrett had an enzyme type 1, a further breakdown of their blood samples. The panel then heard
14: that both stains in the car were enzyme type 1. One of them, according to the testimony in the trial, That particular blood type and enzyme factor was found in only 7%. I can't remember if it was 7% of males or 7% of African-American males, but it was 7%. The other one was found in only 24%.
10: Talking percentages, the witnesses said only 7 out of every 100 people would have Porter's type B enzyme type 1, and that 24 out of every 100 people would have Barrett's type A enzyme
14: type 1. Two victims stabbed, two bloodstains in his car, and they both match. It was physical evidence. That's not really circumstantial evidence. That's physical evidence. It's not a fingerprint. It's not a murder on a videotape. But it was very strong evidence, um, I thought, at the end of that trial.
6: Throughout my investigation, the case of Clifford Jones kept popping up. Jones' case stands out in particular because many people feel there's another viable suspect for the murder, aside from Wayne Williams. I first found Dwayne Hendricks from a YouTube video of Clifford Jones' brother, Emanuel.
7: And your brother's name was? Clifford Jones. It was one early morning, August 20th, 1980. People had kidnapped my brother, a man named Jamie Brooks, Horace Hopgood, Freddie Cosby. These guys held my brother captive in a laundromat right on the corner of Hollywood Road.
10: Hours later, he was found near a dumpster behind the mall, strangled, wrapped in plastic.
7: His brother was inside being beaten and raped all day before they actually killed him and disposed of his body.
10: An alleged eyewitness described the strangling of Jones and identified the strangler, not Wayne Williams, but a man named Jamie Brooks.
7: He knew that Wayne Williams didn't kill his brother. He knew that.
10: And despite all that evidence, the task force blamed Clifford Jones' murder not on Jamie Brooks, but on
3: Wayne Williams the investigators reviewing the case file on clifford jones released to channel two news under court order a file containing statements from five eyewitnesses who point to a suspect other than wayne williams as the killer of jones
6: jones's case also stood out to fiber analyst larry peterson to peterson jones's case was one of the only puzzles he couldn't put together
8: clifford jones case became i think important in my mind one because it was the first one i went to and it was the one that seemed to be the cement, the need to form a task force. At this crime scene, one of the things I did was examine the body, look around the body. You know, are there tire prints? Are there shoe prints? Are, is there anything, what, from a crime scene standpoint? And literally, there was nothing but the body itself. But one of the things I had noticed and collected was over 20 beige carpet fibers loose in his hair on his skin, on his clothes, and I collected them at the crime scene. That was one of the, the fiber types that I'm convinced is important because they were so loose and so many, they had to be tied to how his, his body got there. Whatever sample came in, that was one of the ones I would always go, it was the green carpet, there were some other things, but in his case, I always looked for those beige carpet fibers on any sample submitted for a comparison. And actually, through the trial, they never matched anything. So that was always kind of a mystery fiber as to what, then where did they come from. That had, had bugged me through post-trial, it always had bugged me. The thing that I wanted to know most was I wanted to know everything about what the evidence meant.
6: So, a year after trial, to satisfy his own professional and scientific curiosity, Larry investigated further. He couldn't reconcile these missing pieces.
8: So they had put these records into evidence that they had these three different Ford Fairmonts, 1980 Ford Fairmonts, the family was getting using as rentals.
6: This was news to me. It turns out between 79 and 81, the Williams family was in possession of at least six cars at one time or another, three being rental cars.
8: I was at Fulton County about a year after the trial, and I went by the appeal attorney's office and talked to Joe Drolet, and I said, is there any way if the defense put those rental agreements into evidence is it possible i could get copies so he supplied me with copies of the rental agreements which include vin numbers and descriptions of the automobiles so i took that and i ran it through our crime information center through the vehicle registration and came up with the fact that those had been sold as used cars and i had uh, gbi agents go to those locations Collect trunk liner and floorboard fibers from those three rental cars. In the meantime, I looked at the time sequences of when the rental agreements were and what victims disappeared in those time sequences. Clifford Jones fell into the same time sequence. So when that fiber sample came in from the trunk liner and from the floorboard, the first thing I found was that there were beige carpet fibers in the floorboard of the 1980 rental car that matched the Clifford Jones fibers. Wow. You know, I had a, I had a stronger case after the trial than I even did during the trial.
6: What he found during his investigation was the beige carpet fibers, the ones he could never match before trial, the ones that linked Clifford Jones to a car in Wayne Williams' possession.
14: One of those things where everything built on everything else that came after it. Nothing ever eliminated him. Nothing ever eliminated Wayne. Everything we would come to kept him in the ballpark. Lewis Slayton said at the beginning of the trial, it's a puzzle and we're going to put all the pieces together. And as you watch that puzzle being filled in, they kind of answered every question for the jury. So it's a case to me that its strength was in the totality of all of it.
15: Does he have any defense lawyers? Does anybody... He had a good one for a while, Jack. Jack Martin. Jack's a good attorney. I think if Jack saw something here or didn't see something here, that's why he's not involved anymore. I think everybody's lost interest in Wayne. They realize that he's the right guy, you know. So it's... I don't see much happening on the Wayne Williams front.
14: The bridge made it The fibers made it, the blood made it, the eyewitnesses made it. It was everything. And they told you what Wayne's life was and how it fit into all this, of his taking these cars and driving for hundreds and hundreds of miles, driving in the late night, early morning hours, picking up young boys, going to be a music producer, never really producing anything. They gave the jury a picture of who this guy was.
0: Uh, The story of Wayne Williams is one story, Um, because he was charged and convicted with the murder of adults. That's one story. But the other story, the children, the girls, the boys, who were murdered, who were dumped.
14: How do you introduce evidence from another crime that the defendant's not charged with? Georgia law allows you to bring in what they call a similar transaction. It was a two-part test. You had to prove to a judge that... There was some evidence linking the defendant to the crime, and there was some evidence that the crime would show a pattern, a scheme, and a bent of mind of that defendant. Oh, my God. This is what Louis Slayton's going to do with Wayne Williams. And we're going to have the child murder trial. It's not going to be Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater.
0: I would say that whatever law Lewis Slayton used at that time period, it was probably the most expedient thing to do. If there were enough similarities, then just dump it all on one. And that's not criticizing Mr. Slayton. It's just saying it appeared at that time to be the best thing to do.
14: It gave the public, and again it answered a question on the jury's mind, what about the kids? And they gave, I believe, Atlanta the child murder trial.
15: As I said before, the guy was anonymous, no one's seen him, no eyewitnesses. It is amazing we convicted him without any eyewitnesses. Not a single person came forward. And the witnesses that we had were very shaky at best. They thought they saw this, they thought they saw that. I was not involved in the trial. But they, but again, it was all hairs and fibers, and uh, today it would be a very interesting case.
1: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip.
13: apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast
10: wayne williams told reporters at a press conference in june that he didn't know any of the victims on the task force list you know
14: none of them no. did any of the victims at all adults
10: otherwise. no i didn't no associates no family None. the state has witnesses that will place the victims with williams the next door neighbor of the williams did say he saw Wayne the day the suspect was supposed to be with victim Larry Rogers. Two relatives of the victim said Wayne Williams was seen with Barrett several months before his death. More damaging testimony today from other witnesses who claim to have seen Cater alive on May 21st. One woman placed the suspect with Terry Pugh, but in April of last year, five months after Pugh's body was found. Margaret Carter, a woman who lives in Northwest Atlanta, told the jury that she saw Williams with victim Nathaniel Cater in this Verbena Street Park a week before Cater's body was found in the Chattahoochee River. And the witness also said alongside the two men was a German shepherd. But the person who stood out as the most credible witness was this woman, Nellie Trammell, who placed Wayne Williams in a car with Larry Rogers, saying the slightly retarded man was slumped over in the passenger seat. A week later, Rogers' body is found near Simpson Road.
5: A lot of the witnesses indeed were unreliable. Uh, people got to remember when this case came to trial, that was a half million dollar cash reward out for information leading to the arrest and conviction of uh, anyone associated with the Atlanta killings. And it it's obvious by the testimony that several of these witnesses... when they thought that they would be able to collect reward money for
10: their testimony. Ken Lawson worked in the task force headquarters answering phones and writing reports. But Lawson was amazed to see Nellie Travel as a witness, telling the jury the elderly woman was almost a regular at task force headquarters who would sit there for hours knitting. Every time a body was found, she'd call about it. It got to the point, he said, that recruits would try and pass Nellie's calls off to each other.
5: And some of the witnesses were just playing wrong, like one guy was an 89-year-old guy who could not see.
10: An elderly man who may have been discredited by the defense because of poor eyesight testified he saw Williams with Payne last April.
5: Identified me with, uh, I believe it was Jimmy Ray Payne on Bankhead Highway from a distance of a quarter of a mile away, and he couldn't even identify me in the courtroom. So, you know, it was laughable. Another witness came into the courtroom and admitted just before testifying, he had just
10: smoked weed. Another witness, nicknamed Cool Breeze, putting Williams with Larry Rogers, was an admitted drug user, and in fact told the jury he had smoked marijuana before testifying. His credibility was strained.
5: And he wasn't able to pick me out on the witness stand, so he pulls out a piece of paper out of his pocket and says, yeah, but i seen this guy in the newspaper. You know, it, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. On the other hand, you did have some witnesses, who were just playing wrong in their association. One of those witnesses, Ken Heisman, thought that he saw Joseph Bell at a recording studio that we had on January the 3rd.
13: Kent Hinesman, a 24-year-old songwriter, says he spent most of January 3rd with Williams in this Buckhead recording studio.
10: And there with Williams was a teenager by the name of Joseph Jojo Bell.
7: I remember Jojo because he came in and he, uh, he sang for a few, you know, he sang a few tunes. and he had a very good voice. And uh, I was asking Wayne, what was he gonna do with it? And Wayne said he was gonna sign the guy to a contract immediately.
5: And at the same time, you had another state witness testifying that she saw me with Louis Jeter on that same day as the recording studio session was
10: held. A middle-aged white woman, Ruth Warren, told the jury she also saw Williams with Jeter the day the 13-year-old boy disappeared.
5: He provided an alibi for me because her to record to you, and Buckhead, miles away from where you see her disappear. So you had state witnesses conflicted with each other.
10: But the witness could not remember under cross-examination when she told police about the sighting.
16: Ever this story can help y'all out or whatever y'all podcast about, that's cool, man. But this shit 100, what I'm telling y'all. Recently,
6: a man named Tony came to the office and told me a story he's only ever told his family.
16: I ain't making up none of this, man. This shit for real. And I ain't trying to get no nigga in trouble who ain't shouldn't be talked about or putting no lies on nobody. It's true facts. Me and my cousin, we was going to the Atlanta Zoo. So we had rolled the bikes over there. We snuck in the zoo, matter of fact, you know what I'm saying? Went to one of the back gates where it turned one way or the other, you know, we slid through. So we had chain our bikes up outside. side. When we came back out of the zoo, the bikes were gone. We were basically right there just puzzling, you know what I'm saying, more like how we are gonna get back home. I was living then and the project was called Greater Homes. So I was walking back across the park, going back to Greater Homes and out of the blue, this guy came off the top of the hill. He was like, hey, what's going on? How y'all doing? You, you, you okay? I was like, yeah, we fine. Say somebody stole my bicycle, you know what I'm saying? We was over at the zoo, and now we got to walk back home. So he was like, well, you need a ride? I was like, nah, we good. We, we can walk, you know what I'm saying? He was like, well, my daddy owned this church. Is the pastor of this church over here. It was like in a, a little housing area, you know what I'm saying? So I had a that church because I had been over there. So I was like, yeah, I've I been to that church before, you know what I'm saying? So, so he was like, yeah, my dad is a pastor. He said, he'll take y'all home. Y'all ain't got to walk all the way back to great home, you know what I'm saying? I was like, well, cool then. So we was following him back to the church, Think his daddy going to give us a ride. Instead of him taking us, straight across the street to the church, well, he took us to the street and took us up a pathway in the back of the houses that were along the street that led to the church. That's when things started to feel a little weird. Why, why are you taking us this way? I kind of felt kind of vicious about why he took us through this pathway. So by the time we got back on the opening where the, where the church sat off the street, there was a car parked back there, so he was more like, well, y'all going to get in the car? I'm finna go get my dad, my dad going to take y'all. You know what I'm saying? I was like, no, we're just going to wait till your dad come. You know what I'm saying?
6: The man got antsy and aggressive, and Tony knew something wasn't right. He had to get out of there.
16: So I was like, anyway, I got to pee. You know what I'm saying? So I pissed on the side of the car. So my cousin Bobo was, like, standing by the car beside me. And he was telling my cousin, well, you just going to get in. You know what I'm saying? So he was like, "Nah, we ain't going to get in. Just go get your dad, You know what I'm saying? So he started looking around. When he stepped back to the car again, he had opened the car door up. That's when he got aggressive. His whole demeanor changed. His whole thing was get us in this car. It turned from my dad finna take y'all home to y'all get y'all motherfucking dad in this goddamn car. He had grabbed us in the back of a church where nobody else was around. He tried to throw us in the car. For him to try and get two at a time was a task. So when we tried to break loose and we started hitting on him, and he couldn't let one get away and and keep one. So he had to reach at two people in two different directions. That's how we broke away. He lost grip on one, lost grip on the other. We split it up. And so I ran one way, and my cousin ran back the way we came. I look back and I'm running, I don't see nobody behind me, so I'm thinking he probably got my cousin. So I'm running up the street crying, get way up there, you know what I'm saying? Then all of a sudden my cousin come out, he pop up. I said, how the hell you get away? He said, shit, I just kept running, he didn't come behind me. So I went back to the house. I was telling my mom, I was like, God just tried to throw us in the car, tried to kidnap us. So I took him where the car was parked, I took him where where he took us to, and the car was gone, you know what I'm saying? So... The only description I had then was that he kind of favored my brother. Five, six, five, seven, you know what I'm saying? With glasses.
6: Tony told his mother that the dangerous man that tried to abduct him looked kind of like his own brother, a black man with bushy hair and glasses. At first, the man was nameless.
16: But then, Tony saw the news. And a year or so went by, my mom I were looking at it on the news. And I was like, that's the same guy who tried to grab us, mom. The guy who did it, I remember his face clearly. Everything came together when I saw his face. I knew that was him, White Williams. And so she was like, "You sure?" I said, "That's him." I never forget that guy. Say, "You remember I told you he looked just like Red?" I said, "Now don't he look like Red?" And she was like, "Yeah, he do favor Red a little bit." Like that's him. I never forget his face. We because we fought with him, and there ain't no mistaking no identity. You know, I can picture that whole day clearly. And I looked this man in his face, you know what I'm saying? This man tried to adult me, and, and I know he tried to adult us, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like he was playing. Or he got real serious, you know what I'm saying? He tried to put us in this car.
6: In hindsight, Tony realized the man's gestures were actually a manipulative and calculated charm, a way to lure
16: prey without suspicion. If I would have been by myself, he probably would have killed me. He might have took our bikes. He might have saw us come there and took our bicycles. So he knew that we was gonna have to walk back. He could've killed me. People believe different type of ways, you know what I'm saying? But I know for a fact what he tried to do to me. And I know how corny and conniving he is. It ain't never him to trick somebody in the car with him.
6: To Tony, it all made sense. All the stories about Wayne Williams. He says he saw it
16: firsthand. He wasn't coming at you like a monster. He was coming at you like a friend, you know? to get your trust, to get you in that car. You know what I'm saying? That's why he did what he did for so long because he ain't make no scene doing what he was doing. It was so normal how he'll get you in that car when nobody recognized it. I seen how he tried to do us. You probably wouldn't even be talking to me today. Real talk. You know what I'm saying? I'm telling the real. I ain't, I ain't benefiting nothing from this. You know what I'm saying? My family knew about this. I don't talk about this to nobody. They ain't come at you like no... No beast to get your attention. He ain't pull up and hit you in the head with the baseball ball bag and throw you in the truck. That ain't how he work. No, they was already from a low income family, probably ain't had too much food in the house. You know what I'm saying? Anything can persuade him. A candle bar. Ice cream. Man ain't got no remorse. The man don't care. You know what I'm saying? He ain't, he ain't sitting back in prison really crying he's innocent. He ain't really fighting that hard to let folks know he need to be out of prison. He just doing his time, cause they know he killed the mother child. They just can't prove it. He did that, man. He he he's a monster. I know he's a monster. Killed a lot of babies. You know what I'm saying, shit, sad, man.
6: I thought it was only fair to share this story with Wayne to see what he said about it. Tony made a lot of bold claims, but very convincingly. I asked Wayne for his take. He, uh, he came into my office a few days ago, and he told me that he thinks that you tried to abduct him and his cousin at the back of a church. Back
5: of a what?
6: Back of a church. He said that the man said his dad was a
3: pastor at the church. That's ridiculous. You
5: know, uh, that's, that's one thing throughout this trial. You, you've got people who who come forth with these stories after the fact. And, and, and you got to remember, after my picture was flashed all over the news on June the 4th, you had all types of people coming forth. And I know this guy. Now my point is, where were these people before? Where were these people when these, these incidents happened, you know, at the time? that They couldn't identify anybody. Now I'm not saying that somebody may not have tried to abduct these people at all, but I, but what I'm saying is that there's enough scientific evidence we know today to prove that that witness testimony can be tainted and influenced by publicity after the fact, and that's no doubt what happened in this case and, and a lot with a lot of these witnesses.
6: Is that story true?
5: Absolutely not. You know that's ridiculous right there. You know I, I don't even know these people and. And, and here we are, years later, you know, I hear stories like that. You know, again, we've heard it all through the years. But my point is, if, if it were true, these people would have come out a long time ago. One thing i developed over the years from, from this thing, I've developed the tough skin. I've heard everything. I've heard even the jokes and everything. You know, I've heard it all. But, but, but that, that doesn't phase my resolve to get the truth out, you know, because the fact is, is that, you know, I'm innocent of, of what happened in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's, that's the main focus
6: that I've got to have right now. But Tony's story wasn't the only one I was told.
17: There was one more. Don't be his lawyer, you know what I'm saying? Don't be his savior, don't be his god. you know what I'm saying? Because I know what i seen with my own eyes. At this time, I was staying on one side of town, the bankhead side of town, and we had moved from Grant Park and my aunt still stayed there. So one Sunday, I went over there to play with my cousin. I'm at Grand Park. We was at Grand Park playing. Then when I left, instead of me waiting on the bus at Atlanta Avenue, I went up by Atlanta, Food and County Stadium. And I was sitting in the bus stop waiting on the bus. And then a big blue Chevrolet pulled up, stopped in the middle of the street. And he let the one of them was He like, said, hey, can you tell him how to get the model Luther the King? Mm-hmm. He said, well, where you stay at? I said, well, I stay on Bankhead. But you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm finna get ready to go. He said, I'll get you a ride. I said, no, I don't need no ride. I sat back down in the booth, you know what I'm saying? So I heard some car tire. like, So I get back up and look, he whooped the car around in the middle of the street. You know what I'm saying? But this on a Sunday in front of Fulton County Stadium, wasn't no game, so buses run slow. Ain't hardly nobody, you know, moving. So I'm like, ain't no more car coming by. So he whooped back up by the bus stop and ran up on the sidewalk, you know what I'm saying? So I jump up, and I was looking at the sketch. I was looking at the sketch in the back of my mind, like, the same dude be on TV, like, you know what I mean? So I stood up and looked. And at first I did jump back like, is this for real? I'm looking at him and he step out with one leg and the little afro stick up in there. He looked me dead in the face with the glasses on. I'm like, oh, bro, really got to be kidding because they already saying they looking for you. You know what I'm saying? And You still like playing. And I had told him I didn't need no riding. And I had told him what Martin the King was. And if you from Atlanta, he didn't really have to turn around right there. He could have went down to the red light, made a right and went to Marlu the King. When he pulled the car around, he pulled up on the sidewalk like he was trying to kidnap me. I can't be the judge of what Wayne did, but only thing I can say with somebody say, he didn't kill all them children. That's why I be standing here saying today, wait, pump your brakes. Everybody in the project knew they were poke, so we didn't even fight each other like they do now. Gangs, him, gang. Now we didn't fight each other. Like, you in front the project, you poor like me. You got no reason to fight. But if we hear something about Wayne, we're going to, your mama going to call my mama. My next door neighbor said Wayne Williams, just trying to get her son. That was the conversation back then. Yeah, they were saying Wayne Williams. They weren't saying no man in the blue card. Wayne Williams. They were calling him by their name. So it, it is it's real to me. I ain't, you ain't offer me no money. You ain't offer me nothing. I'm just telling you what happened for real. You know what I'm saying? We was already as kids preparing for if he came or when he came, you know what I mean? You no know, guys start buying little pocket knives and stuff, you know, like get a piece of glass and wrap it up in a napkin, put it in your pocket. Like, you know, if you ever got in trouble or somebody pulled up on you and tried to get you, that was your weapon. I mean listen, man, listen. I'm not trying to debate with nobody never about what I seen or what happened to me. So you know what I'm saying? I don't need nobody run up on me twenty years later saying, Well, you said Wayne, you know, but I know what I seen. I don't have to keep on trying to rehash it like I'm trying to convince nobody. You know what I'm saying? I know Wayne, I done seen Wayne since then. You know, shook Wayne's hand just to get in front of him, be like, bruh. You done seen me before. 89, I was a young, you know, a little young rich dude. Had done caught my fur dope K. Went down the road and uh Man, they put some dope on me, you know what I'm saying? They said, dude up in the law Library will help you out. When I went up there and seen who it was, you know, it kinda I was like, nah, I can't let him work on my case. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was just me. Wayne was working in what they call the law library. Now, Wayne in there, he done kind of trick the folks, saying, like, I'm small, let me work in the law library. So when you go in the law library, you got a dope case. Wayne making friends with the dope boys, because he need really protection. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I get in good with some of y'all, I can get the rest of these folks on my back, because everybody got kin people in him. He is like the poor people's lawyer, by he working in there with the books, and every time you see him, he reading the book. But you had guys in there who didn't have all your money, so I was like, I'm smart, you know what I'm saying? I do finna go to college, so I started working on my own case. So I'm sitting there, Wayne, just like y'all sitting there, another inmate, Wayne, you know what I'm saying? Like, he killed nobody in my family, or got people saying he didn't do it, you know what I'm saying? So so when you he see you and you say, what you in here for, a little bro? You know what I'm saying? Now, you might not know he Wayne William though. You would be like, man, they planted some dope on me. You know what I'm saying? That's how you broke when you, they planted some dope on me. That wasn't even my dope. That were right up his alley. Oh, now I can work on his case and build my friendship, but, but I can get people to stop saying I'm a killer. So what Wayne would do is look over your case for you. You know what I mean? And be like, yeah, we're gonna fire this habeas corpus right here and get your case overturned. You're gonna go home. So Wayne was in there helping people. When well, you in now Wayne is your friend. Because guess who is your enemy? The system. Everybody in there was like, when I see him, I'm going to kill him. Let's see if you got 31 children missing. You got, I mean, you got 34 kinfolks in there, cousins and nephews and brothers. When I see him, I'm just going to choke him. You know what I'm saying? You know, but they couldn't get to him like that. Like when you go to the law library, you sign a piece of paper and they handcuff you, and take you up there and they open the door and throw you in there. You're like, shit, why well, he might kill me up in the library? You know, he might be done made a shank and put it in the, the law library book. So if he got a raise in the in the book, he could juke you. with, you know? Say if he's a killer, you know what man want to face a serial killer? No, they no. One day, dude, come in there, and I want to say he was from Capitol Home. I remember we had a little small conversation. He was like, "I'm gonna get him." You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna get him. I guess the little kid Tobajito or somebody from Capitol Home had got missing. Some kind of way he turned the cone in the library, and didn't hear nothing but. You know what I'm saying? When I looked around, though, Wayne was picking the glasses up off the ground. You know, that had tears coming out of his eyes. And, and I just said, I said, he just, it there was something on his mind. He wanted to get out. Like, he wanted to file for Wayne. We didn't ask for this, life. With forty food stamps in the way I found the wick and the government cheese, and the pile of milk, like it was the day we had apartment. You know what I'm saying? And the lights was on, but wasn't no furniture in there, wasn't no food, and i like, where we gonna get it from? One, one thought, one part of history I don't know. Somebody got to tell me who started first hating. It had to be one or two people. It couldn't have been Jesus, was it? But somebody had to start hating. Hatred and racism. They never taught us that in school. Until a bunch of us get together and start knocking at the at the door and have our own million man march of blacks and whites. Not no riots and protests. I don't want you to go to jail for me. Like, if, if we don't come together as one and like I said, we can have these conversations every week if, it, if we feel like it'll make a difference. But this is the Wayne Williams show. You know what I'm saying? But we need another show. You know what I mean? And we want to break these race relations.
6: If there's one thing I've learned throughout my work on Atlanta Monster, it's that no matter how you slice it, this story is bigger than an investigation, bigger than a trial, and bigger than Wayne Williams. This case evokes deep emotions even in people that weren't directly affected by the killings. And from what I've seen, it's inexorably tied to a feeling of social struggle. No matter who committed these crimes, the people of Atlanta, particularly the black community, didn't feel safe or sufficiently supported. Through sensationalized media and heightened pressure, the children that were murdered almost seemed to become a secondary narrative to the story of Wayne Williams. But it's most important to remember how this all started with Edward Hope Smith on July 21st, 1979.
5: I I think podcasts such as what you're doing, Payne, are are one of the best ways to attack this misinformation and try to get people to open their eyes and see, wait a minute, you know, it's time to wake up and seek some truth. You're trying to tell a very difficult story, and you've done as best a job as you could telling that. So, uh, I guess that speaks for itself, because after all, uh, Payne, you you tackle probably one case that very few of us understand, and and, and, and I commend you for trying.
6: Who is the Atlanta monster?
5: We don't know. We, we, we really don't know. And I think that that it's, it's clear at this point there was never any single Atlanta monster. I think that your monster is probably a group of of some of these white supremacists who were involved in some of these killings. I think your monster is probably people involved in some of these and drug ranks that no doubt killed some of these victims. And I think your Atlanta monster may well be the streets of Atlanta in the cases in which the victims were victims of street crime. So I think instead of Atlanta monster, you probably need to relabel it. Atlanta monsters and put a plural on the end of it.
6: Wayne, did you murder anybody?
5: No, I have not killed anybody in my life. Wayne, That's a question people ask all the time, and it's a question that, that I welcome people to ask because let, let me tell you something, you know, I can look people in the eye because my soul is is at rest with God. I sleep very good at night because we've all done things in our life that are wrong and we're not proud of them. There are probably a million things that I've done in my life that I could have been arrested for, but killing somebody isn't one of them. And I think anybody who really knows me and knows my character knows that, that this is a situation that was trumped up against me, so I sleep good at
14: night. It's this murder mystery that never ends. As you know, there are just so many questions. We're fascinated by crime
0: stories. This is never going to go away unless someone is arrested and found guilty of killing one or two of these children, and then somebody else is arrested and found guilty of killing a child. No, it's never going to go away. And even then, it won't go away, because there will be, still be people who say, I don't believe he did it. <laughs> This is a story that will last longer than the two of us.
12: There is this growing sense that if we don't figure this out now, maybe we never will. You know, is this going to go into some Jack the Ripper-style vault of perpetually unsolved mysteries?
0: I don't think it's opening up an old wound because I think the wound is, is healed because many people say Wayne Williams is in jail and that's it. But I think what it's doing is informing a new generation because there are a lot of people who've never heard of this case because they weren't born when it happened. And so now it serves two purposes, the historical perspective two It also opens up new minds to investigate the case. And then three, it reminds young people, you can't run footloose and fancy free all over the city and think someone's not gonna grab you. Although we'll never know why those particular children were were taken. They were poor, they were black, they were in a poor part of town, alone. And right now they're still alone. They are alone in that no one seems to bother about saying, I really want to know who killed Luby Jeter. I really want to know what happened. Who's been holding something inside for all these
12: years? For many of these children, the way that they were characterized, suggested to people, there's no reason for you to cry for yourself because they don't have to mean anything for you. And you don't have to cry for them and what they lost either because that wasn't going to amount to anything much. And that, to me, is not only tragic and upsetting, it is simply untrue. It's not true for anybody.
11: It felt heavy. That's how it felt. It felt sad, and it felt like uh, like there was a very terrible person, indeed a monster, uh, who was just devouring black men.
6: This is former Atlanta mayor Kasim Reed. His term in office just ended this year.
11: I was mayor for 2,920 days.
6: He remembers the child murders firsthand, as a young boy growing up in Atlanta.
11: There needs to be an equality to the importance of life. To the extent that you have real equality of the importance of life, you would have had more attention faster if it were a white child. Any child is harmed. We ought to have the same level of intensity and passion and focus from day one. There should not be a lag time for alarm. It needs to be that a kid got killed and we're going to find who killed the kid and we're going to bring that person to justice. And it needs to be a unified feeling that that is the case. It should not be community by community. And to the extent that we do that, we are a better city. We have to maintain that important ethic that our children are hands-off to anybody. And that anybody who attempts to harm our children will suffer extraordinary, dynamic, and extreme consequences with unified support. That's what I hope that the lesson will be.
6: Thanks for listening to Atlanta Monster. If you've enjoyed it, I encourage you to check out our first podcast, Up and Vanished, a true crime investigation into the disappearance of Georgia high school teacher and beauty queen, Tara Grinstead. Up and Vanished is available now on Apple Podcasts. Atlanta Monster is a joint production between How Stuff Works and Tenderfoot TV. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Audio archives courtesy of WSB News Film and Videotape Collection. Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia Libraries. For the latest updates, please visit Atlantamonster.com or follow us on social media. If you have any questions for me or the team, please call us at 1 833 285 6667. That's one 285 6667
9: For the ones who
14: work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins.